again. Um, really hope all of you had a wonderful Christmas. I know it gets really busy, and it's amazing how fast it goes. It's just every year it seems like, wow, Christmas got here really fast, and it was over really fast. Uh, and now we got New Year's coming up. But once again, thanks for coming. If you're new this morning, my name is Travis. I'm the campus pastor here. I know some of you are visiting family, but we're glad you're here um, on this nice, rainy, almost feels like May Day. Kind of seems like, doesn't it? So, hey, uh, we're going to keep a message a little shorter this morning, but I, I wanted to share. We have been working through the book of Isaiah, or I'm sorry, a particular verse in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. We've been looking at these four titles, these four names that were given to Isaiah as part of his prophecy to Israel about a coming Savior, a coming Messiah that would one day come to restore the nation of Israel, to restore the world, the man that we now or here this very morning worshiping the man of Jesus. And he's given these four wonderful titles and ones that we often celebrate in Christmas. And so we're going to look at the fourth and final name uh, this morning. But if you would, I'm going to go ahead and open us up with a word of prayer and then we'll get started this morning. God, it is, it is truly great to think about this passage and how uh, it affects us personally, how it affects the world. Thanks for giving us a Savior that is worthy of these four names. Uh, these four names and many more for that matter. But God, as we open up the word, uh, may you just speak through me. May you give me the words of, of your spirit to help us draw closer to you. As that is, that is the greatest thing that we can have is, is to be close to you, Father. Uh, Lord, thanks for all these people and thanks for all these families that are here this morning. We love you. We thank you. Amen. It's the most pop, one of the most popular symbols in the entire world. Now... It means something different in some countries, so don't go to every country and do this. Um, it can be very offensive, but for most people, including this very own in our country here, um, it's a symbol of peace. It is one of the most popular, recognized symbols in the entire world. It's been around for since about the mid-1900s, but of course, as we know, uh, the idea of peace has been around for a very long time, or at least the idea and the desire for it. There are many other cultures that symbolize peace in different ways. Uh, we think of the dove. We think of the olive branch, or um, I don't have a picture for it, like the, the, what's called the white poppy flower, and many of you have probably seen this before, but... Um, Many symbols, many cultures, uh, many groups of people have desired peace for so long, they strive for it, but sadly as we know, that at any point in history, including this very one right now, that there is always some conflict in the world. There is always some conflict, and that can be on very small scales to very large scales to something like like wars that we unfortunately have. And in fact, almost as long as mankind has existed, there has always been conflict in the world, has there not? You think about it, you go back to the book of Genesis, and it just seems like right after God creates man, what, what happens? We see conflict, we see sin into the world, we see Adam choose to disobey what God has called him, and we, and we see the very first conflict enter into the world, and then not too much longer after, their own kids have a conflict, so much so that murder happens. And then we, if you continue reading on, we see that conflict just gets worse and worse. And as we look at our world today, I don't have to convince anybody in this room, there is a need for peace in the world. We need it so bad. 
We, we, we're a world that longs for it. I was reading the other night, um, just did some research that this is just mind-blowing to me, that in the past 200 years alone, this is just data that they're able to collect. I'm sure it's far, sadly, it's far more than this. But in the past 200 years, over 200 million people have died from wars alone. This does not even include violence that happens between individuals. That's just looking at large-scale events that people have lost their lives for. So many long for peace, and yet, sadly, so many only believe that peace is achievable through conflict. That peace is only achieved if a certain group of people are in control of everything else or if they get rid of another group of people. Sadly, from the world's perspective as well, that peace often seems unachievable, that it, that it is too big, that there are too many differences between people, both as individuals and as groups, that the idea of trying to get everybody united together is simply impossible. So that's why, unfortunately, we have so many groups of people that believe, well, then just get rid of certain groups of people, and then we can live in peace together. And sadly, from the world's perspective, that may be true. But from the perspective of God, that's not true. Peace is achievable when we look through the eyes of God. So we are going to be real quick in the book of Isaiah. If you'd like to turn there, it's going to be Isaiah chapter 9. This uh, couple verses that we've been looking for, but I'll read it for you here real quick. Um, As Isaiah is being told by God here, uh, just as a quick recap, The nation of Israel had turned their backs towards God. They were committing many, many social injustices. Uh, They were committing offenses towards God. And Isaiah is warning them about this. However, what's neat in the book of Isaiah is that Isaiah's ultimate message still is that God will provide the solution to it. That it's not going to be left up to the nation of Israel to solve this problem themselves. That in fact, it's so severe that God has to step in and do something. And so... Isaiah chapter 9 is that solution where God says, okay, I have the answer, and the answer is going to be a child, but a child like no other, a child that will have these four titles, the man that we know to be Jesus today. But Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says this, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteous from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So once again, God steps in and he says, the solution is me. And we've been unpacking all of these names over the past few weeks. But we get to this one, we we see the final name here, the Prince of Peace. Each of these names is equally important, but they're also equally distinct in their own way. When we think about the wonderful counselor, um, this is the the idea of that the the Savior, God himself, would become our wise leader. As mighty God, he'd be the all-powerful, all-encompassing God. And then as the everlasting Father, he's that eternal Father that brings us into his family. And so when we get to this final name, the Prince of Peace, 
we get to this one, and each one seems to strike up a different chord, because here's my personal belief, and I think many hold this, is that each of these names, they reflect a, they reflect a characteristic of the Savior, but they also speak to kind of what is the longing of the human heart. Because each of these names really does. To know that we have a wonderful, wise counselor leader. To know that, that the God that we serve is mighty. To, to look at God as the everlasting father. And then to see, hear the, the phrase, prince of peace. Even saying the word peace does something to the human heart. To know that peace is existing. So it's a title that certainly resonated with the people of Israel. And I think it's one that still resonates with us today. And here's why, because one thing I want us to remember is that when we talk about conflict in this world, please remember this, that nobody desires to see conflict and enmity come to an end more than God. No one despises conflict and tension more than God. No one desires peace more than God himself because this is how he designed us. This is what God desired in our life. God's desire is that mankind would be ultimately connected to himself first and then to others. It's kind of hard to connect with others through conflict and tension. There has to be some type of restoration. But as we'll see today, all of this goes much deeper than than what we often think because God is not just concerned about the large-scale events. Yes, God cares about major things that happen. When we think of the word peace in the world, we think of often you know, bringing wars and conflicts to an end. And God certainly desires that. But as we're going to see today, that God, in fact, desires much more than that. That his desire for peace, as you'll see, in fact begins with our own hearts. It begins with the individual. That if we are going to talk about peace, we have to recognize that it begins with the heart. Many people mistake this when, when they look at, when historians often talk about wars, right? How many times have you heard that, that wars begin because of some type of disagreement or a power struggle between two nations or two groups of people? That's not true. It begins in the heart, and it leads to those things, but every major conflict begins in the human heart, the sinful heart. And so as we talk about the Prince of Peace What we have to realize is that God does something greater than just restore large-scale things. He begins with the heart. The greatest conflict that has ever existed is man being separated from God through sin. But as we talk about the Prince of Peace, we'll do something simply incredible that only God himself could do. Many in history and many today have tried to achieve peace in the world but only one person can do it because only one person can change hearts. Ephesians 2, if you want to jump to there real quick. Ephesians 2, this is a, it's an incredible passage here. Um, speaking about the power of the gospel, as, we're, as we've been looking at each of these titles and, and we believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the things, we have to go to the New Testament and say, where does it show that Jesus actually is the Prince of Peace? And Ephesians 2 is an incredible place to begin with this, okay? Ephesians 2, we're looking in verse 11 here real quick. Uh, once again, as Paul has kind of been talking about how the, the works of Jesus has done something only God could do. 
and, and he's speaking to kind of the, the Gentiles and the Jewish believers here, and he, and he unpacks something really incredible here, right? So Ephesians 2, chapter 11 says this, um, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in, in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Look at this. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's amazing what Paul's kind of doing here. He's saying that through Christ... Unity is able to happen because oftentimes in the Bible, the Bible oftentimes breaks up uh, Jewish and non-Jewish. And, the, and for so many years, there was a massive separation there. But what Christ does, or what Paul does here, is he says that Christ is able to unite those together through the blood of Jesus. Paul reminds the Ephesians that the gospel is for all people. But notice what he says here about the circumcision of the heart. One of the issues that the, that the Jewish uh, believers had struggled with is that uh, for many of you that have read through the New Testament, you know that often uh, the New Testament believing Jewish people, they accepted the gospel, but they often wanted to include circumcision as a part of the faith. That as a Gentile, that was great that you got included in God's promise, but you now need to go do this. And Paul over and over again throughout his letters talks about how that's just not true. And one of the things that he addresses here is that he says, and, and and Jewish believers remember this. You, even if you do have that, there's something in your heart that needs to be addressed that's even more important. But nonetheless, through the work of Jesus, unity has been achieved because of his death and resurrection. Okay, look at um, verse 14 now. For, for he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. God, just, you just hear that again. For Christ is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And look at how he did it, verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we... Uh, excuse me, for through him we both have access in one spirit through the Father. Peace begins, it maintains, it is finally achieved through the person of Jesus. It all starts in our hearts, and the only person that has the ability to change hearts is Jesus himself. Just like the nation of Israel had done during Isaiah's time, Paul even acknowledges that we too turn our hearts from God. We, we walk away. And, and so therefore, we, we, even if we create division, our ability to create division never outweighs God's ability to restore it. This is the beautiful part. Because as, even as our hearts have been turned, even as all things may happen, as Isaiah writes, as Paul reinforces here, 
God provides the solution, and it came through Jesus, his life, death, resurrection. So when we often talk about peace from the world's perspective, right, we often, I think the first image that comes to mind is that we often want to hear um, that for peace to be achieved, that everybody has to lay down arms, that, that there has to be an absence of conflict or tension. But that's not really the true biblical definition of peace. Because when we talk about peace from God's perspective, as we said, it goes much deeper than this. See, peace is not just the absence of conflict, but rather it's the creation and the pursuit of restoration and oneness of people. This is what I love so much about the golden rule, by the way. If you compare the golden rule to many of the other world's religions and philosophies, most of the world's religion and philosophy often say, don't do bad things to people, which is a good thing, right? Don't do bad things. That's not what the golden rule says. The golden rule says, do unto others what you would have them do to you. See, one perspective is, is almost kind of a passive approach to life. Just don't do bad things. No, the Bible holds us to a much higher standard. Do good things. And if you think about it, you, you can't do bad things if you're doing good things. It's a brilliant thought, and it's a brilliant phrase from Jesus when he says, do this. This is the golden This is what it means. But see, this is often the world's approach to peace, which is, well, peace is achieved when conflict has stopped. No, the Bible says peace goes far beyond that. I love what uh, one author wrote. He said that true peace is oneness. It's not merely the cessation of hostility or the absence of conflict. It means being one. That's what Paul talks about here in Ephesians 2. The Ephesians, the first three chapters, talk so much about the unity that is achieved in the body of Christ. Look, one of the things I love about church and why I, I love Sunday morning so much is that even in this room, there are so many differences that exist. The people to your right and left, even if they're your family, they are different than you. Okay, we think about this community that we're trying to reach. We, 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 you know, we're trying to celebrate the, the diversity that is recognized in this area. It doesn't make sense, like, how the church is able to bring people together shoulder to shoulder despite the differences that may have because the work of Jesus is the only thing that's ever able to truly unite people together. That's something amazing to think about. But that's what we have to distinguish. The world wants to say peace happens when no more conflict exists. The Bible says no, peace happens when we become united together in Christ. Like I said, we, we often want to jump to large-scale examples of when we talk about peace such as war. Um, this is one of the issues the Jewish leaders had with Jesus. They were hoping that when Jesus would come, even when they think about this verse in Isaiah, I think uh, oftentimes the mistake was they, they hoped Jesus would come in and become this great uh, the leader that would overtake and overthrow the Roman rule and become and lift this nation up. And yet, as, as we look at the overall message of the Bible, that in fact the mission of Jesus was not just to come and end all conflicts, even though, by the way, I think one day he will. One day all that will come to an end, which is amazing to think about. But Jesus came to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins so that by placing our faith in him, we might be reconciled to him. I love 
Romans 5.1, a, a very, very important verse in the Bible. Paul says, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. So this is where we start, this is where we begin, our own hearts. We have to start with our own lives and recognize our need for the Savior. In order to have peace, we must first have peace with Christ, and he's laid out the steps to do it for us. It begins and continues with faith. With faith. From the moment we place our faith in Jesus to the daily decision to simply trust in Jesus. The Bible calls us to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. The Apostle Paul, that was from Jesus. Paul himself wrote, if possible, live peaceably with all men. But understand this, that as the scripture calls us to live that way, understand that it's never done outside of the power of Jesus. That's not something that's left to our own abilities. We often mistake this. We often think that even when we're doing good things, that we are able to look back and pat our own selves on the back. But in fact, it's through the power of Christ that gives us the ability to do all of that. We have to start with Christ. Ask him for wisdom, how to handle things. Start with our own hearts uh, and where maybe we've even gone astray and knowing that God always forgives and brings us back. And this is what I want to close with this morning is, what does it mean to pursue the God of peace and to have that in our lives? How does that affect how we live as individuals? How does that affect how we seek to have peace with others? For anyone that does know Jesus personally, who knows what it means to live at peace with God, you see something amazing happens when, when we have that freedom of knowing that our relationship with God has been restored, that the, our God, our creator, our maker has peace with us, that through faith we have been reconciled, that changes things. It changes our outlook, our philosophy on life, it changes how we treat people. Because we, we have the spirit of Christ living in us that says, I want to pursue these things. I want to have this peace, not only with God and with individuals, but as, as an entire world. We should. We should live that way. We should be peacemakers. We should live in a way that reflects Jesus and, and seek to pursue restoration. And that we always maintain an attitude and perspective of peace. When we consider the links that Christ has gone for us to bring him back to himself, when we consider that Christ does all this um, through him and that we can, too, experience reconciliation, that's when I believe we can begin to experience something, a peace that we all long for. As I said, each of these, these names that's given, I think they resonate within the heart with us. I'll close with this final verse, another great one to move forward from. A great verse that speaks to how our peace with God affects our lives. From the book of Philippians, it says, Do not worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. And this is, I hope this is an encouragement to you. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and mind as you live in Christ Jesus. Let's pray with that. I'm going to invite our band up. Let's close this this morning. God, thanks for giving us the path 
of what it means to be reconciled back to you. Thanks for being the Prince of Peace who, God, I know one day as we think about this world and all the conflicts and all that's going on, God, I know that one day you will bring all that to an end, that we will have a world that, God, is absence of that, where all people have been united back to you. But, God, I know right now you call us, even as individuals, to restore us, to, to bring peace within our own hearts, and you do that through your Son by dying on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins, that, as Paul said, that we might be reconciled with you. God, it's my encouragement and my prayer this week that, um, that we go out and we reflect back on that verse that says, when we give all this to you, when we, when we not choose to worry but instead pray, that, God, you give us a peace that exceeds all understanding. God, it's a, it's a tough verse to even try to explain. How in the world can, can you have peace in the midst of so much chaos in life at times? But yet, God, that's who you promise you can be to us. And so, God, I pray this morning that we would, whatever is going on, that we would be able to give it all to you, that the Prince of Peace can handle anything. Lord, thanks for giving us another year as, as we even start a new calendar year. God, we're thankful that you give us life. Thanks for the people this morning. We lift them all up to you. It's in your son's name. Amen.